Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of spoiler special podcasts. This one is dedicated to the Nick Cage extravaganza that is Paddington 2. No, only joking of course, it is the unbearable weight of massive talent. And to help me carry the unbearable weight of this massive film, I'm joined by three unbearable colleagues of such lethal cunning, Helen O'Hara. I object to unbearable. Hello. <laughs> James Dyer. I object to massive talent. <laughs> and I'm on woman. Hello. Do you object to anything? <laughs> nope. Just the two of us. <laughs> Sustained. Overruled. <laughs> yes, indeed. The unbearable weight of massive bellends. Hello, Jimbo. That, oh, that was actually a compliment. Oh, <laughs> I guess you The unbearable weight of my massive bellend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so this is the Nick Cage, Nick with a K, uh, a celebration. Like you just say Nick fucking A Cage. Nick fucking. Why does he do it again? Does he go? Does he go fucking or is it Cage? And he goes. No, he goes fucking A. And then he goes yahoo Cage. <laughs> yeah, so he goes. At least that's how. So I is it think. the fucking that's the long one? Does he go, he go Nick fucking no, 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 or is no, it no, Nick, Nick fucking A? Yeah, no, it's yeah. the Cage is the long. Long bit. Otherwise. Okay, so no, it's, it's Nick fucking A. The A is long bit, and then Cage, and then Yahoo Cage. Is it fucking A or is it just? We fucking? should definitely get hung up on this point <laughs> before we begin the podcast. This is important. This is important. We need to establish this. You know, is it? It's is in it the Nick trailer? And there's fucking. No, no, no. Or is it Nick fucking A? Yes. Okay. That's right. Well, if you're still listening to this, uh, we're about to <laughs> dig into the unbearable weight of massive talent, uh, celebration of all things and Nicholas Kim Coppola, of course. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to hear from the two guys who came up with this demented idea <laughs> and somehow brought it to the big screen as well. They are director Tom Gormican and his writing partner, Kevin Etten. And Amon here uh, was the guy who was lucky enough to speak to them, via Zoom a couple of weeks ago, just before the film came out in cinemas. And um, Amon can't really remember what they talked about, but it was good, right? Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> so were you I was, about I was, to nod on a podcast? I was you, were about to nod. you were wearing yeah. the green jumper. <laughs> this is a green shirt. It's the film with Nick Cage in it where he plays himself. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yeah, that one. <laughs> yes, yeah. that one. Good These one. guys, the directors of that. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, so. Good one, I think. I remember. Who knows what delights <laughs> lurk within, but here we go. Tom Gormican and Kevin Etten, do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on this very special, spoiler special, for The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent by the writer and director, Tom Gormican, and the writer, Kevin Etten. How are you doing, guys? Excellent. Thank you for having us. Very well. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, congratulations on the film. I loved it. I'm excited to get into the nitty gritty <laughs> of it with you. All and right. as, as a Brit, there's only one place I can start, and that is with Paddington 2, <laughs> because it's one of my favorite <laughs> jokes in the movie. Was it always that film? And what led you to that? It actually was always that film, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, that was stuck all the way from first draft, I think. Yeah. You know, one of the things, it, it, this movie is like supposed to be a celebration of Cage, right? But it's also a celebration of making things, make, writing movies, making movies, making. And, and, and for us, we, we hope that our fandom came across. And I think if we're honest with each other, Paddington 2 is a perfect movie. It is. You know, I, it's, 
I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, I think that that it was always the case. <laughs> we, we love we love that film when we, we thought the idea of also Nicolas Cage watching Paddington 2 just made us laugh. I don't know why, but it always made us laugh. I've, I've told this story before, but I had a I did have a friend and Paddington 2 came up and he said to me, you know, I cried through the entire thing. It made me want to be a better man. And so we, <laughs> we, we that was cribbed from real life. I noticed you didn't actually show the movie. We only hear it. What was the reason for that? Oh, good oh, question. Uh, <laughs> uh, you'll have to talk to Warner Brothers. <laughs> uh, well, the problem is our movies are rated and they won't allow you to show a PG movie in the art. Uh, no. No. So we weren't allowed to show Paddington. Oh, man. Interesting. Yeah. Have you had a chat with Paul King, by the way? Has he seen the movie? I know we haven't. I'd love to. I'd love to, but no, we haven't had a chance to talk to him. But we're a big fan. <laughs> awesome. Um, the the meta commentary on Harvey and Nick's script unfolding uh, is really, really funny. Was that similar to how you guys wrote the script, only without the LSD and the gangsters? I presume. <laughs> yeah, you know, we we I guess we wanted to talk about the idea. You don't really see people coming up with with ideas and uh, like in, in films and batting them around, but there's always this moment where you have this excitement and you talk about what it's going to be and how cool and amazing it's going to be and then there's that moment where you go yeah but what's the thing that we're writing what yeah. are we, what are we <laughs> actually talking about what's the actual work that we have to do and it's always this de- this deflating moment <laughs> in the creative process where you're like oh yeah there actually has to be a coherent story <laughs> yeah we actually had we had another scene or two actually of them um going to eat fish tacos and talking more about the plot and coming up with it. And there was kind of some fun stuff. And actually the young Nick character shows up and is kind of, you know, anytime Javi has a good idea for his own character, young Nick goes, Oh wait, so, Oh, so he's the Christ figure. And then, you know, which prompts Nick to go like, Oh, so maybe there's like dueling Christ figures or whatever. Um, And it was, it was, it was funny, but it was, you know, it was finding the balance for an audience of, how sort of uh, inside baseball you could you could get with it? Yeah, how much of the creative process audience <laughs> would, would accept? <laughs> yeah, awesome. Because uh, you you go really deep in the script on Nick's career and his filmography, but you also give him this fake fictional family. Were you ever worried about going so deep on Nick Hedges' psychology, his career, his financial woes in the actual script? Yeah, I think it was always an anxiety of ours because we wrote the script on spec. We wrote the entire thing without have, ever having met Nick or talked to Nick. So the things that were the most sensitive, the financial stuff, like we were always worried that, especially in the it's in the first act, the beginning of the script. And we thought maybe he's going to read a handful of pages, shut the script and throw it across the room and be like, this is it. I'm not doing this because it takes it takes someone who's willing to be you know, very vulnerable to actually um, and have some perspective on himself to present a version that's down and out. And so I think that we were always very anxious about that. And we wanted it to be a blend of reality and fiction because we thought that would make him slightly more able to wrap his head around it and be willing to be vulnerable on, on screen if you didn't know what was real and what wasn't. And the one thing that really changed as we started working on this script with Nick was the the element in act one where he's in the version we had written, he was a really kind of narcissistic, I would say absentee, bad dad. And that, you know, Nick 
in fairness, said, guys, I'm really not this guy at all. Um, I'm okay to play with it somehow, but, and I know you, I know you need a character arc to go from narcissist to, to selfless, but it, it can't be that. And so kind of what we worked on with him was changing it so that he was a dad that was trying to create a little version of, of himself and his daughter. Um, and so he was always trying, but he was trying in the wrong way. So that was, a, that was the one thing that really changed through development. One of my favorite things about the film is the alter ego, the Nikki uh, character, uh, which I think is the Vampire's Kiss era of Nicolas Cage. Was there a short list of different characters that that could have been? And what led you to that? Well, I think it was a twofold consideration. One was technical because we had to de-age the character and we had to see what was feasible within the budget that we had, <laughs> like how much you could do because it gets more and more complicated as you, you know, de-age uh, someone further. Um, and then it was just feeling out what Nick was comfortable with. And he brought up the Wogan show interview. I don't know if you've seen that where he comes out and he's doing a somersault and a round <laughs> oh, yes. kick. And he said, you guys got to see this thing, which we had already seen. And he said, that's the guy I want to play. He's like, I find that guy so obnoxious that I would love to get back in his skin and actually make him the kind of villain of the film. And we thought that was a really interesting version. Yeah. Speaking of, like the different uh, Nick Cage personas there have been over time. I heard that there was a long fight scene in which roles were like face-off, Conair, leaving Las Vegas, gone in 60 seconds, were all on screen. Uh, but yeah. it didn't make it into the film. Why is that a deleted scene? <laughs> <laughs> That's well. another one where, you know, it. it's a really cool sequence where... Um, you get to go inside Nick's head and, and we actually go into the German expressionism, um, you know, style of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is this film Nick is watching through through the movie. And we get to see this insane, trippy black and white uh, fight sequence where he, you know, kind of goes through these three different films um, four. four. And yeah, it was, it's really cool. It was it was kind of another like pacing issue and an issue of like how much could a big huge audience you know yeah the studio thought it maybe was a bridge too far for a commercial audience to all of a sudden have a black and white sequence in nick's head but you know uh that that's how things uh fall sometimes you know (laughs) just so you know i'm gonna go on twitter after this and release and i'm gonna do a hashtag release the gormican etten cut just so you know, <laughs> it's happening. Are there any other deleted scenes that you are excited for people to see, hopefully once the Blu-ray is released down the line? Yeah, there's some fun ones. There's a, there's a good one where that, that we loved and we cut, cut a bunch of stuff for pace because we wanted this movie to, to fall into a very specific time frame. We thought that was like where it landed was just about the limit of what audiences could accept. But there's a fun sequence where Nick gets to Majorca and he asks Javi, what the Wi-Fi password is. And there's like a deeply uncomfortable silence. And then he's like, N-A-T-I-O. And it's National Treasure 2. And, and Nick is like, so it's National Treasure 2. And he says, colon, book of secrets, all caps. And Javi, like, it's, it's, it's Pedro playing Javi, just spinning out and being like, I can change it if you want. If you want me to, ch- I should have changed it before you got. And he's like, no, I love it. It's like, I, I, I don't know why I would change it. It's a phenomenal thing. And he's just going through this tornado of just like insanity. But, you know, we had to keep the movie clipping along. So there are fun things that we took out. Oh, 
That is so good. I can't wait to see that. Um, one thing that does make it into the film is Nick Cage French kissing French kissing himself. Um, yeah. And I know that I, I know that, that was a suggestion on his part. Once he tells you that after you've laughed yourself silly, what's what then happens to to make that happen? <laughs> Well, yeah, well I'll tell you what, we, we shot the thing and then he's so he's in there and he's going in for this like French kiss. And Kevin has the idea <laughs> to have him put his hand up on the back of his own head and like go like really deeply kiss himself. And Nick sort of was like, no, nah, that's too much. That's too much. But he does it anyways. Then he comes over to the monitor, comes kind of charging over and goes, let me see that. And he watches it and he goes, Oh, well, I like that. And he goes, let me do another one. <laughs> and we, so, and it was just, it was, we're at this point, we are crying, laughing, thinking about how this is going to play in the audience. It's a thing that you kind of only get with Nick Cage. Yeah. You know? I mean, we knew it was going to work because the entire crew, st- I felt like the crew guys just started laughing. I, I think the, the camera was like it, shaking you know? half the time because we were all like, this is. What are we doing here? Oh yeah. yeah. But an incredible one of the best mornings of my life when Nick was like, yeah, I yeah. have an idea for you guys. I've got a pitch for you guys. <laughs> I think I should deeply French kiss myself. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Yes, perfect. Pedro Pascal's character, uh Harvey, I absolutely loved him in the film. And he has uh, a cage treasure trove, which is revealed at one point in the movie. How challenging was it to get all that memorabilia? And was there anything that you wanted but you couldn't get? Yeah, you know, I wanted the uh, the snakeskin jacket from Wild at Heart, <laughs> you know, the, the, the snakeskin leather jacket. Uh, we weren't able to source that. Uh, apparently, Nick had given it to Laura Dern, <laughs> so, so maybe she hasn't. Uh, but uh, but uh, it was it was difficult to to license all that stuff. That that's by far the most expensive set in the entire film. And because uh, we had to license everything that was in there. And then, you know, we had the wax Nicolas Cage sculpture from Face Off made and it had been shipped to us. But it had I think it had kind of melted. OK. <laughs> and when it came, it looked even more ridiculous. And we had to get Bill Corso, our like prosthetics and head of the makeup department to come in. And actually, I was like, you have to help me. I can't show this to, to, to Nick. It looks absurd. <laughs> you know? I was like, he's going to have a fit and like walk off the set or something. <laughs> like, what do you think? I look like um so we got it back to that shape you see it in in the film which is also not great but like it's definitely more palatable than it was but actually but it was a it was a, one of those happy accidents is where uh you know on the day when we are all there and we all see it and we all decided you know like oh wait we have to comment on this so it just gets funnier because nick is like is this me? You know, it's, it's grotesque, you know, and it's like, and then he offers to buy it for $20,000. So yeah. it all kind of, made we do better. yeah, secretly wish that that statue is either in Nick or in Pedro's house. We have no idea what happened to it. I love that. You got Chekhov's golden guns in there. As soon as I saw, it, I was like, that's probably going to come back up in the film. I, yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah. Getting those in there. That's, that's funny. I find it interesting, you know, there's this amazing scene uh, with Harvey talking about um, he and his father bonding over a Nicolas Cage film. And Nicolas Cage film that you pick is uh, Guarding Tess. And I wanted to know, why did you go for that film? Well, I think for us, it was, you know, finding things like that that worked weren't just references to Nick's movies to to reference them, but things that worked story-wise. And, you know, at that moment, 
Nick has just betrayed Javi, stolen his information from him, and he's, he starts working with the CIA. And we thought, what's the sweetest movie that he could reference and like, you know, compounds the feeling of betrayal in Nick's head. And it just sort of made us laugh to, to have him talk about his relationship to his father, like the Shirley MacLaine, Nick Cage relationship in that film. <laughs> it just felt like a like a fun kind of deep cut from Nick's catalog. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was like a funny reference. And as Nick kind of says, you know, he goes, you know, Doug was a complicated guy. He had competing allegiances. So it, it kind of, you know, it helped him. He brought that, I think he brought that line into it to kind of go, okay, this is what the scene is about, but you have this weird deep cut, deepish cut. Yeah. <laughs> Harvey definitely knows a lot of Nick Cage trivia, as I'm sure you guys do. One of those trivia bits is that he did all his own driving stunts in one particular movie. So I have to ask you, there's driving in this movie. Did Nicolas Cage do all his own driving stunts in this movie? He did, right? Yeah, he did most of them. He's really willing to actually get behind the wheel and and <laughs> and and do them. Now, there's some stuff that we were doing that uh, is, of course, um, on a stage. But the ones with like the Porsche, you know, with the with the open top, Nick is driving that whole time. He's really behind the wheel. Awesome. So the last we see of Harvey before the premiere is him getting shot. <laughs> was there was there any more after that? The original no. ending where he died. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. No. no, no, no. He there wasn't any. Um, you know, we uh, we wanted to feel like this Javi character, this super fan, had given his life for his idol and like using the golden guns. And it was like, okay, he's become a version of Nicolas Cage that completes his arc. Uh, and then we actually mm. found out that that. Uh, we had tested the movie and, and Javi and Gabriella were together and they call Nicolas Cage. But we, we found out that we were really craving, like when we watched it back, Nick and Javi being together at the premiere. So we brought him back. But there was now there's never any other stuff shot of him, you know, how he saved and how he, you know, <laughs> how he survived. The final act is really packed uh, with a lot of incident. One of those one of the big things that happens is uh, the. Uh, CIA, the government agents, uh, they die. Why did you decide to kill off Tiffany Haddish and Ike Bionholtz, who are very fun in the movie? Are they actually dead, by the way? They are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you know, that was something we, uh, I have to say, we went back and forth on, like, whether or not to kind of, you know, bring them into the third act to help, you know, save our gang. That was something we had discussed. But I think it was ultimately a decision to kind of really try to raise the stakes in terms of for the audience of like how how nasty this could get like we wanted to just crank it up to we are now in a real action movie where people can die and stakes are are high yeah and that because that you know the script was constantly changing genres and it was the trickiest thing about writing it and about making the film was how to transition and how to let you know that we're no longer laughing at this moment like we're in a serious thing and it's really going to affect nick and he has to step up and be the hero and the only way to do that the most shocking and surprising way was to kill those characters that people mm. seem to generally love and actors that people generally love and don't die in films and so that was you know that was a, a, the conscious decision to to turn that dial and to have you know to make it feel like okay nick is nick is on his own there's nobody here to save mm. him he's got to truly channel his inner, you know, action movie star. 
Absolutely. Uh, you mentioned the, pros- the prosthetics earlier. Uh, there's prosthetics <laughs> at the end of this film. How far mm-hmm. did you want to push that? What, were there any crazier or more absurd options than what you ended up with? Well, you know, Bill Corso, the the our makeup artist, called me and said, how real do you want this to look? And I said, <laughs> I want it to look absolutely perfect. And I think he did such a great job doing it. But we thought, like, it can't go too far because then, like, kind of a the, one of the more broad moments or implausible moments becomes completely ridiculous. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's also, it turns out, very difficult to hide Nicholas Cage in prosthetics. He always looks like Cage. So, like, we had to find... <laughs> That so like it was that look was created basically because it was one of the only ones where he started to look like somebody else. It's really it's just like the eyes and the shape of his nose. Like it's hard to get away from him. What was it like on set when he steps on set in that garb for the first time? <laughs> that was another favorite moment for me because he really like embodied that character. He had this walk and he had the you know, he, he was really in it. And so it was like, it was among a million kind of bizarre, awesome moments that that definitely did stick out as I couldn't stop laughing. Really. Yeah. He looks like an Italian football manager and he had this like backstory he was creating, you know, and like when he came out in that whole thing, he said, all right, I'm here. I'm Sergio, the Italian clown. <laughs> like, is, I don't know. It's just very funny to see him transform into somebody. And also, you know, the movie's about Nick preparing for the role of a lifetime. And we got to see him jump into this character and prepare Sergio's backstory and his, you know, the, the cadence of his voice and all this stuff. And it's really, it's really kind of cool and meta and strange for us. That is incredible. I love that. Um, one of the cool things about that ending is it goes from the film into another film with the Demi Moore cameo. Was it actually the studio who decided that as, as it is written in the film? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We, we thought that, you know, to me, would it make it very clear that we're now in the movie version made about the movie that we just watched. And uh, so, no, that was that was our choice. And to me, was like a good sport and loved the script and came on and said, OK, I'm, I'm in. I get what you guys are doing and I'm going <laughs> to come in for this quick shot. And but one of the most surreal moments is when that transitions into the through the screen into the premiere. So we were in South by Southwest with Nicolas Cage at the premiere watching the movie oh that gosh. became the premiere. And like they were they were standing up and cheering for Nick while on screen they're standing up cheering for Nick. And it was the whole thing just became like, you know, like looped in on itself. And we felt like the universe was potentially crumbling. And it was just it was just like the spirit of this project is so absurd that we um, that that was a true highlight for me in the making of this film. <laughs> One of my favorite moments in the film, and I'm sure many others, is when Nick says his name. <laughs> I'm not going to try and be creative because nobody could do it. Yeah. But did you know that that was coming before he did that? Was that sort of part of your script? And, and I, no, I, that was another another very cool kind of uh, Nick idea. I mean, I think we had scripted it, Nick fucking Cage, but then... <laughs> okay action and uh, it's nick fucking cage and we were all blown away i mean it was you know but he would constantly he would constantly bring those those ideas and elements to set my my favorite one i've said is there's a scene with pedro and nick on the um when, when they're about to jump off into the into the water and nick goes you brought me out here on like a wild goose chase and just this like kind of 
bizarre reading and it was and he and he had you know it was a conscious choice and it was felt real and weird and yeah i mean he was just full of them he loves that stuff when he does the long nick fucking cage he came <laughs> over and we were like hadn't seen him we take i take off the headphones we're standing by the monitors and he walks over to us and he looks at us and smiles and said I wanted it to be transcendent. <laughs> we were like, okay, <laughs> perfect, great. And he goes, let me do one more. And he never did anything differently than that. It was so funny. I don't even know how he does it. But that's why you make a movie like this, because he makes choices like that. And it, there's just an authenticity and a weirdness to it. I read that this was originally scripted to actually be set in Mexico, but he had to change it for COVID reasons. How different was the film as a result of that change? The basic story was very similar. I, I, I uh, the, the only, yeah, no, it was, it was the same. Basically. The, the, it's the same narrative. It was just like at, he was a cartel uh, boss in, in Mexico and he, we made him an arms dealer or something, yeah. a European arms dealer <laughs> uh, in the thing. But the, generally the narrative was uh, the same. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk about the sequence where uh, Nick has to break into Harvey's security bunker while while he's doped out of his mind. The joke <laughs> when he's jolted into action with action is fantastic. Can you talk to me about crafting <laughs> that moment and watching it play out? Because it's amazing. I mean, yeah, well, we have to, first of all, give credit to, I believe it was Nick, one of our producers manager. and Nick's manager, Mike Nylon, who pitched that line to us on the day and we tried it and, and then we and we tried it in the previews and it just got a huge laugh. So shout out to Mike Nylon. Yeah, we thought we were constructing that moment around just like Nick. We were like, OK, it'd be fun because he's not an action hero. He's an actor at a party. And so he can't be kind of you know, it can't be James Bond walking through the house. He has to be kind of bad at it. But he's also the star of our movie, so we can't be that bad. At, so, so we created that idea that Nick doses himself. And then, you know, we were trying to think of the funniest situation to put a dosed guy in. And we were like, let's try to get him outside. <laughs> you know, let's get him outside on a ledge. <laughs> and so we were just having fun with it and putting Nick through the paces. And part of it is you're thinking, how is Nick going to act this? Like, I'm just, we were genuinely <laughs> curious how Nick Cage would approach, you know, being drugged out by this, uh, this chemical where he's falling asleep. And so we were, it, the whole thing just sort of made us smile. And at the end, we were trying a number of different ways to get him to, 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 to come back to life, to wake up. And that one just felt like, when when he said it, we were like, oh, that's the most obvious version. It's great. I think we I, I will say there was inspiration from the the Leonardo DiCaprio performance in um, Wolf of Wall Street. In Wolf of Wall Street when he is, you know, that is such an epic sequence. So we definitely looked at that for, you know, for inspiration. Yeah, yeah, and that, that it did remind me a little bit of that, but in the best way because it's such a fantastic scene. Um, do you think this could have worked with any other actor? You know, the way that the, the Zombieland cameo wasn't originally written for Bill Murray, but they changed that. Could, could you have tailored the movie around another actor, do you think? We had talked about that kind of in fleeting conversations at one point, just because we were like, if he says no, then this was a colossal waste of time. So we were like, is there anybody else that we could slot into to this? But no one else really meets the criteria that we were looking for. Um, who's had like wild ups and downs in the career and is unbelievably talented across genres. And like, 
you know, but also has this strange, and I think it's because of like the memification of his face on the internet. People really love him. Like the sight of him makes them happy and they want him to succeed and want him to, to, to sort of come back. And so there really wasn't anybody else that we landed on that we felt comfortable with. I wanted to ask you, what was the first and the last scene that you shot? And do you remember what you're feeling in each of those moments? And what was Cage's reaction to rapping on this film? The first scene we shot was the scene out kind of on the terrace where they're um, target shooting. Um, and it's Pedro and Nick. And I mean, I just... I think we had, you know, we had just been thinking about this project for so long and to finally be there in the moment, it was, it was, it was just nerves. It was just wanting to, to just get into it, I think, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was, a, that was a nice moment. It was like, um, as the story is turning kind of stormy, you think Javi is getting, you know, uh, he, he's going to bust Nick on his like dual allegiances. And that day was one of the first stormy weather days we had in Croatia, which we're shooting for Mallorca. And so it was kind of this thing where it's chaotic and the hair is blowing and the wind is going. And we're shooting these, you know, these targets that are flying out. And it just like all of a sudden it was so beautiful for us to see the whole thing come to life and see the sweetness of Javi's character. And then he turns dark and Nick playing vulnerable and scared. And it was that was just really kind of a kind of a such a cool moment for us to actually be there and finally get the movie up and running and uh you know at a weird time in the world and then the you know the, the final scene that we shot was actually um the scene you were just talking about where he doses himself so you know in that, that <laughs> moment where we were calling action uh i think was one of the that probably the final moment of the shoot where it was like he's coming to life and he's standing up and then that was it <laughs> and it was just such a wild ride for us and sort of a risky career gamble to spend time writing this project to get him and to get it made and um it was it was truly kind of I, I think just like a deep sigh of relief to have the whole thing <laughs> shot i'll bet i'll bet I'll, I'll end with this uh the lsd trip sequence uh, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I okay. think it was for leaving Las Vegas where um, Nick Cage uh, to really paid attention to what it means to be a drunk person and put that into uh, his performance. When it comes to LSD, can you talk about his preparation for that and the conversations he was having with you about what that might look like on screen? Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether or not he's ever done LSD or hallucinogenic drugs, but I think like, you know, the idea that, um, you know, his preparation for that was just trying to be like, get inside like the strangeness of these scenes and really embrace them. It's the concept is that as they're talking about the genre of the movie they're writing, the filmmaking would subtly change to reference that. And so they would start acting sort of in that style. So, you know, for example, when they're on the steps of the church and he's going, you know, the movie could be a paranoid thriller. And he goes, oh, I love that. And he's like, like, these guys will be watching us. And he's like, wait, are they watching us? And we started to say, you know, and so we started to go through the various stages of like, you know, tripping on various substances. There's just a wide eyed sort of awe and then the paranoia and like lots of different phases of those types of things. And Nick was mm -hmm. game to just play along. I think he's using a lot of. There was a funny scene we shot that I forgot about that was 
that got cut from that sequence where uh, they go into a church and they've just the trip has just started and Nick looks up and Jesus starts speaking to him. And basically Jesus <laughs> in this version is just a huge fan. And it's just like, I just got to say, I, I'm so sorry to do this, but I loved you. And, you know, uh, bad lieutenant, bad lieutenant, Port of Paul, New Orleans, <laughs> just played as like, just the total, like, I am so sorry to be this guy. I don't want to be this guy. Yeah. And he's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. That's very sweet of you. But we were like, this movie is getting, we had to constantly manage the levels of yeah. the absurdity and whether it was just yanking people out of the film. But... <laughs> that was a fun one. That was yeah. a fun one. Yeah. Again, guys, release the Gormican Etten cut. The hashtag, I'm going to start it. It's going to go viral. We have to make it happen. Uh, Tom Gormican, Kevin Etten, thank you so much for your time. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to meet you. Okay, so that was Tom Gormican and Kevin Etten. And now it is time for us to talk about the unbearable weight of massive talent. Uh, A film that, I'll be honest, when I first heard about the concept, I dreaded this. Uh, dread it, run from it. The unbearable weight of massive talent arrives all the same. Uh, but as it hoved into view, it looked like they might have nailed it because this movie could have gone wrong in a million different ways. It could have been, you know, the kind of self-obsessed, narcissistic nonsense of the highest order. But it's a ton of fun, guys. Do you agree? Yes, I had an absolute blast with this film. I think it's right up there for funniest film of the year with Jackass. Um, and I do not say that lightly because Ooh. I freaking love that film as well. Um, yeah, I've just to consistently laugh hard at a number of the jokes here. And the jokes, they switch up the variety in really cool ways as well. There's physical humor, there's great dialogue, mm-hmm. there's the bromance, which I'm sure we're going to get into, which is really yeah. the heart and soul of the film. So mm. yeah, I, I, I freaking love it. Yes, indeed. Jimbo. I fully expected to hate this film. Yeah, I almost yeah. wanted to hate this film. <laughs> you always want to hate films. I do, I do. It's true. You and fear I fear films and mistrust them. I do, I do. And as I sat there next to Helen, ready to piss all over her chips and express my disapproval of the film, which Helen, yeah, which enjoy. was, I mean, it was really, I was worried. <laughs> Why are you bringing chips into the cinema in the first place? Well, because it was tea time, and I need some sustenance. It was tea time. <laughs> yeah, this mortal vessel requires. That's sustenance. not vinegar. Anyway, look, I, oh. I. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I think for all the same reasons that Amon said, the bromance was absolutely delightful. It's funny. It's self-aware. It's not narcissistic. It's self-effacing. Yeah. It is an actor who is not afraid to make fun of himself, even though at times, you know, it cuts quite close to the yeah. quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the fact that it riffs on, you know, all of his great films. I think that's genius as well. Because, and guarding tests. <laughs> and guarding tests. <laughs> but the fact is, though, also, it's it's like, it is a, like a different version of Nick Cage, but it's also absolutely not. It's just Nick Cage. So I, yeah, it's great. I uh-huh. loved it. Okay. Absolute, yeah, absolute breath of fresh air. I mean, I was, I was actually, I think I'd heard maybe from you. I think you'd seen it beforehand. You'd, no, I don't think I had. Okay, so I, so I'd heard from people that it was good. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, but I didn't expect it to be as good as it was. I, like it was unnecessarily good. It, it was. was better than it had to be. It was unnecessarily good. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like there yeah. was, a, there was a bar this film had to clear, and it sort of leapt yeah. over <laughs> it with loads of room to spare, and did a spare like flip in the air on the way down. Like it. I just think yeah. it, it really it, smashed my expectations. It dived over the bar in slow motion, dual-wielding pistols and surrounded by <laughs> doves. Yeah, it did. so many doves. Yeah. Um, but also, like, it, it was just delightful. It, it made me angry that the Mandalorian always wears a helmet. <laughs> like, I think, yeah. I think Pedro Pascal is so adorable 
adorable in this. He really is. He's so warm and funny and charming. And I find myself grinning at the screen quite a lot just because he was smiling and therefore <laughs> I was smiling and I wasn't sure. It was involuntary. It wasn't like something mm. I was thinking about. <laughs> but um, but it's just he's got a great face and and he should be given more chances to use it. But he has a real kind of almost naivete in this. Yes. Like this mm. childlike quality yeah. to him, which absolutely... And weirdly, you know, as geeks, we recognise that. It's the, you love something so much, it turns you into a five-year-old kind of glee. Yeah. And I thought he captured that perfectly. Yeah. And the way that the film plays out between them, it's not just a bromance. The... the, the the beats that they hit are pure romance. I mean, mm. th this is in many ways kind of a rom-com, a sort of... Yeah, uh, it's like a love story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, um, a non-sexual rom-com, I guess, where the, the two of them just are so delighted with each other. I mean, obviously, uh, Javi is, is delighted with Nick Cage long before he turns up, but the way that Cage is won over by Javi, you know, is, is plays all those beats. And then there's the, you know, sort of beginning of the third act twist where they find out they've both been betraying each other. But then there's the sort of... <laughs> It's kind of a run for love at the end. It's just a run for love where they're being chased by men wielding machine guns. Yeah. Hmm, you know? Nah, it's perfectly cast as well. There's been a lot of uh, interviews in which it's become clear that Pedro was a massive Nicolas Cage fan beforehand. And who isn't? <laughs> yeah, but like in terms of the, the, the super fandom of Harvey was very much, you know, what Pedro Pascal already was. So there wasn't much work needed yeah. to bring that out. And you can, you can tell, I think. Uh, yeah, for me, actually, Pedro Pascal is probably the MVP of the film mm -hmm. uh, because I think if he doesn't sell it, mm -hmm. if he doesn't bring a certain type of heart to to this character, and if he doesn't bring that naivete, um, because we everyone thinks that he's a drug dealer or a gun runner going into the movie and that he's some he's murderous in some way, uh, and he gets you on his side, he disarms you so quickly. If that doesn't work, then the whole film doesn't work. The whole film collapses mm -hmm. under the unbearable weight of <laughs> massive bell endry, uh, <laughs> let alone talent. Uh, but let me ask you this before we get into specific uh, moments and sequences from the film. Would this film have worked with any other actor other than Nicolas Cage? This reminded me a little bit of the Bill Murray cameo in Zombieland, where it wasn't written for Bill Murray. It was written for, I believe it was written for Jean-Claude Van Damme initially. And then they just went, okay, we can't get Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who can we get? And they cycled through a whole bunch of people that they thought they could get to, to cameo in Zombieland. Eventually landed on Bill Murray. It's genius. Perfect. Can't see it working with anybody else. But here, I think they didn't do that. They think they, they wrote this specifically for Nick Cage. But could this have worked with someone else? Could this have worked with uh, another actor? Or is Cage's really weird, imprecise and yet precise career, this messiness yeah. that he has in his career and this this idiosyncratic acting style. I don't think there's anyone else like him on the planet. That's what makes this work. You, you need yeah. someone very specific. I almost want to say someone like Kevin Bacon, maybe, mm. because you need someone who's good, you know, you know, iconic, has done a range of great and terrible things, but also is aware of their own absurdity, which I think Bacon is, but I don't think Bacon's big enough. I think Cage is the absolute perfect person to do this for, without a shadow of a doubt. But if he'd said no, Kevin, maybe. You think Kevin Bacon? Really? Maybe. Interesting. Because I don't think, I, I honestly don't think Cage has a, has a, a, a comparison, honestly, because, you know, I, I didn't do part of the, the Nick Cage, I wasn't part of the Nick Cage ranking when we did it at episode 500 back in February, but I'm a huge Nick Cage fan. And one of the reasons I'm drawn to him and I've been drawn to him over the years is because he you can't predict what he's going to do. No. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not just in terms of projects, but you can't predict what he's going to do 
in the course of a, <laughs> a course of a film, and he's not always this this live wire. Sometimes he he is he can get quite maudlin and and mm. introspective and dialed down. And there was a period of his career when he was doing things like Guarding Tess and City of Angels, where he was basically doing this serious sad sack, moon faced, mopey <laughs> Nick Cage that I didn't quite like. But I engaged with the wild go for broke. I engaged with Cage, the wild go for broke Nick Cage, who takes chances and takes risks and. I don't. I honestly cannot think of anyone else a, a, I, in mainstream A-list Hollywood star, or was an A-list Hollywood star who who compares. I, I yeah. I think. Look, I think this works better with Nick Cage than it would have done with anyone else. I, I'm sure they could have re- retooled it to someone else mm. mm-hmm. if it had come to it. Like a Keanu has a kind of weird career as well. Even someone like a Brad Pitt, who's done the sort of leading man stuff and had the mm. swishy hair, but also done weird off the wall madness you you could retool it for someone else it's possible but this is definitely i think the best case scenario just because of what you say because of the weirdness because of the different stages because of the way he can ping pong between winning oscars and starring in season of the witch you know it it just which he should have won the oscar for yeah no he shouldn't if if only because (laughs) they don't understand how long a league is it drives me up the wall the imprecision of that film also like when the witch trials occurred like it's hundreds of years out in every direction it doesn't make any sense I could, but, you know. I could see a Keanu film more than I could see a Kevin Bacon film in this vein. I think that might work, but yeah, not quite as good as Nicolas Cage, as you say. Well, of course, the thing with uh, with Keanu or Kevin Bacon, even Kevin Bacon or, or someone else like that, is that you know it works here because Nicolas Cage had hit the highest heights and has also hit the lowest lows, yeah. and has had a very very interesting. Uh, and I want to talk about this in a second. I want to talk about the the thin dividing line and the very deliberate decision to call him Nick Cage with a K whenever his shortened version is with a C. So if you say Nick Cage, it's N-I-C, but here he's Nick Cage with a K. Uh, but, you know, and give him a, a different family, yeah. obviously, in this for, for narrative and dramatic purposes, but also to lean into things like the off-screen brouhaha he got into with the IRS, which led him to do... A whole bunch of movies for 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 cash. Although he yeah. says never for cash, he always he always, he always tried put to it, put, put something into in there. there. Yeah. And yet, look, I think um, uh, by the way, if if you haven't um, read, I think was was the GQ piece recently on Nicolas Cage. Uh, yeah, far be it for me yeah. to recommend another uh, publication, but yeah. their, their their very lengthy interview with him was fantastic recently and is very, very worth reading as a sort of companion piece to this film. But I think it, it's exactly that the fact that we do know about his public struggles with with money and all these public stories of overspending and and spending on really bizarre things as well that that all came out a few years ago and that he's been working himself back to a place of financial stability and security. Um, we all know that happened. That that was very, very w- widely publicized at the time. And he's willing to joke about that and he's willing to lean into that. And I think it also, however, speaks very well of him that he wasn't willing to do anything that might be construed as, you know, attacking his own actual family. So he has sons. Here he has one daughter instead, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, they, they very deliberately moved it away from too many biographical details of that personal life in order to create some space between Nick Cage with a C and Nick Cage with a K, um, which I think is is probably the right thing to do. We don't need this to be exactly his biography. And, you know, his kids deserve privacy. So I think that was that was super good. Yeah. We just thought the the one person I think it could have worked. Mm-hmm. Who's that? Goblin. <laughs> um, that's a good point. That'd also be fun. But then I'm not sure people know his deep bench of work maybe as well as they know some of the 
the Cage stuff. True, true. But, you know, and, and you're right. Cage has the big high ticket blockbusters and the Oscar stuff. And then also the the, the smaller stuff, yeah. whereas maybe Goldblum didn't quite have that, even though he started two of the biggest films of all time. Indeed. Obviously. I was just going to say, I like how they merged the Nick Cage family aspect of the film with the bromance of it all in the, I guess, mid to final act. Um, because that is part of the heart of the film, that sort of getting back on the same page with the wife, with the child. And that really comes through in, in those final minutes. So, yeah, yeah it was good. Interesting that they cast uh, Lily Mo Sheen as, uh, as his mm. daughter, who's, of course, the daughter of Michael Sheen and Kate Beckinsale. Yes. Who, therefore, knows something about growing up in this milieu. I mean, I don't think she knows anything about growing up in a family quite as awful as the one we see presented here at the start with <laughs> that amazing, amazing scene in the in the sort of therapist's office mm. where he is being just monstrously egotistical and narcissistic. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, I would hope for her sake, and I'm, I'm sure from everything I know about her, uh, her family background is not that, but it's still, it's a nice little sort of meta touch to cast her in that. Yeah. And uh, and the, the idea that you know, there's actually something going on here as well that for all the for is a very very funny comedy. I don't think the last third is is as successful as I would like it to be. I but agree. it's a very funny comedy for the for for the most part. But there's also something here about you know being, becoming a better person, becoming a better parent, yeah. becoming less self obsessed and self involved. Yes, and and marrying your art to your personal life, and mm-hmm. and I, I think kind of moving past this image of the tortured artist and the idea that. You know, no matter who you hurt and who you victimize, it doesn't matter as long as you're creating great art. I mean, obviously, in this in this film, he's also reckoning with the fact that he hasn't always created great art. But hey. I think the um, but you know that is an interesting thing for a Hollywood mm-hmm. film to tackle because we're so often shown the the opposite. We're so often shown nothing matters. It's you know it's the pursuit of the great goal that is the important thing, and it's it's not just that actually. You also should try to be a decent human being. Mm-hmm. Jimbo, uh, you see, you saw this film and you you laughed, I did uproariously <laughs> I at did. it, uh, which surprises me uh, because I don't think I've ever heard. I'm you a laugh. man without humour, <laughs> and yet I seem to have found some. I don't know something. We, we, have, charmed me. we have sat together in two comedies recently, and you have laughed both times. Oh, in what the, was the other one? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yes, that's oh. true. I found both of them. Very amusing. <laughs> Someone uh, has finally given Data an emotion chip. It's true, it's true. Uh, yeah, I, but it's just, there's something about this just very charming. I find Nick Cage just a delight, an mm. absolute delight. I interviewed him for this very podcast along with Nick DeSemlin and there was a point where, for reasons, we printed out the pictures of the Nick Cage Disney princesses. You know the ones where it's all the Disney princesses but they have their, they all have Nick Cage's face. What? I mean, it was a meme going around a while ago where someone had the, the, the arts, the drawn versions of the Disney princesses but all of them are Nick Cage. I must see this immediately. And it was just going around <laughs> social media and so we just printed them out and we brought them along and he talked us through all of them. <laughs> he just went through all of them and was like, yeah. Like, I mean, it's they're very, wow. very troubling. But he's he's just wonderful. He's absolutely yeah. wonderful, and uh, I, there is no one quite like him. But also, I'm I'm completely in love with so many of the things in his body of work, from like The mm-hmm. Rock to Face Off, and to see that like when my favorite part, <laughs> you yeah. ran the gamut there, didn't you? From the, yeah, from, from the, the Rock to Face yeah. Off, the complete range of things that he's done, like <laughs> from the action movie he released yeah. in 1996 to the action movie he released in 1997. Yeah. I love them all. I love them all. <laughs> all of his work. The moment when he goes into Pedro Pascal's sort of like man cave of shame. Yeah. And 
and he's just like, you know, I warn you, this is going to change our relationship. And he goes in there, and it's just like fanboy geek out heaven, and it's just it's got the string of pearls VX gas from the rock in yes. there, like that that the cage thing, and he tries to buy it off him. It's just so funny, yeah. and believable. That moment of going from absolute horror at that horrific waxwork of yeah. himself. It's grotesque. It's grotesque. I'll give you $20,000. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is that is yeah. amazing. That is an amazing, amazing piece of comic timing. It yeah. is. And it speaks so brilliantly to what we know is in real life cages, shall we say, generosity when it comes to buying things yeah. uh, yeah. as yeah. well. Uh, but yeah, I loved it. So what was your favourite because it uses cages back catalogue really, really well. And I was honestly gobsmacked. I think I may be the I may not be the only person here. Maybe someone in this room has seen Guardian Tess. I have. I, nope. You have? I've seen Guardian okay. Tess a very okay. long time ago. I'm yeah. very, very surprised by that because <laughs> I, you know, I'm not quite a Cage completist because he's made 575,000 movies. <laughs> but I've seen a lot of Cage over the years. And Guardian Tess is a good little film. I would also recommend, by the mm-hmm. way, if we're doing this, um, It Could Happen to You, uh, yes. which is a really sweet film with uh, with Bridget Fonda. Mm-hmm. Uh, so check that out as well. Uh, that wasn't referenced in this, I don't think. But Guarding Tess was. I think was, there was a very t- passing reference. Really? I think there was. Okay. Uh, but obviously there are some movies that are that form the cornerstone of the of the cage references, your Con Airs and your Rocks and your Leaving Las Vegases and things like that. But Guarding Tess, for that to be in there. Yeah. Uh, Amon, you probably won't remember. Did you ask Kevin and Tom about that? I think I did. People will know by this point whether you have. I have no idea what the answer was, but I think I did ask a question about guarding tests. Yeah. See, this is why you pay the money, folks, to subscribe to the spoiler specials. But but apart from guarding tests, what what was the moment that really, the the cage reference that really clicked for you in this? If if we were doing this on Zoom, my Zoom name would probably be Chekhov's Guns. Uh, I I really love that reference. Chekhov's golden guns. <laughs> Chekhov's yeah. golden guns. Yeah, but, but it's built in so naturally that you don't. You know, it's not screaming Chekhov's guns at you. So I thought that was yeah. that was rather nicely done. Yeah, I like that one. Um, I should have had a flaming moose in there. I think that was a missed opportunity. <laughs> By the way, regarding the man cave, is it weird that before the lights came on properly, there was a silhouette of a person of a national treasure, and I immediately recognised it Nothing before wrong with the lights that. came on. Nothing wrong with that. Just a little bit. (laughs) Have you guys seen the deleted scene from this movie where uh, Nick asks Javi for the Wi-Fi and Javi's like, I cannot tell you, it's it's too embarrassing. And he's like, no, what is it? And he goes, uh, (laughs) I think it goes, National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. (laughs) (laughs) A good movie. Really though? I I fine. would like to see National Treasure 3. I don't know why. No one else does. I, I would. I would. I want to see more Benjamin Franklin Gates. I think that may be the only Nick Cage film I've been on set of. Really? Yeah. I was, and so I got to see him go, Whiskey? <laughs> I got to see him do that live. Oh, I was on set of Lord of War for a week. Wow. No way. For a week in Cape Town. Yeah. That's amazing. Did yeah. you get to speak to him? Yes, a number of times. And what was particularly cool was an unusual one because they gave me the script the day I got there. So I got to sit in my little apartment. What, to, to do notes? Yes, <laughs> to come back with notes. And I it. But when I interviewed Cage, I was talking about scenes that he hadn't shot yet. And we were talking about how he was planning to play it. And that oh, was amazing. genuinely That's fascinating. Wild. Do you remember there's a scene in Lord of War where 
Like he's out of his depth and there's a warlord there and he takes one of his guns and shoots another yeah. person with it. Mm -hmm. And he obviously shits himself as a character and he gets really angry with the gun shouts and he goes, that's a used gun, I can't sell a used gun. Like, and he completely twists it to make it like he's just running with the the incident and he's not absolutely terrified. And that's what we were talking about. He's like, yeah, no, because I've been giving that scene a lot of thought. I'm really not quite sure how I'm going to play it. And he gave me a couple of different ways he was thinking of playing it. I was wow. like, this is amazing. Wow. Um, a little bit of insight into the cage process. Yeah. That's one of amazing. the best films in cool. this filmography, by the way. I think it was in my top 10 when we did the ranking. Lord of War is very good. Yeah. One of the best opening credit yeah. shots oh, of all good. time. That as is well. good, yeah. Mm, well. Yeah. He came in to do that web chat that web time, chat, yeah. which was which was delightful. Um, and he got mobbed on the way in in a way that we should have predicted and failed to do, which I'm still mortified by. Did you guys not have a secret entrance or something? We That was at the secret oh, entrance. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he, he was full on mobbed and our security guard was overwhelmed and it was just Jeez. awful. Uh, and, and you know, he took a he took a few minutes and, you know, went and washed his hands and then, you know, just came back and and began. He was, he was amazing um, oh, wow, and delightful. Know. He was very, very you know, polite, charming, thoughtful in his answers, even for kind of sillier questions. Mm -hmm. You know, he was, he was lovely. I yeah. also met him at a, um, a reception for uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes. <laughs> oh, my um, God. That's the film, I think, that... Because, you know, there's one of the things in, in, in the film... Uh, that's kind of unspoken is that he has fallen on hard times and uh, I think he said this himself in interviews for this movie that he hasn't made a studio movie for about 10 years mm. because studios just stopped hiring him and weirdly enough I think The Sorcerer's Apprentice flopping as hard as it did yeah. that was the last studio movie he made but when you think about it you look at all the movies he's made over the last 10 years some of them are incredible mm. you know Mandy Mandy, mm. oh, God, yeah. Mandy and is so good I have a lot of time for the colour of space I have a huge amount of time for Pig you know oh, Pig, Great. Mandy and Pig, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, there's been some shockers in there as well, but you know, you make as many movies as he is and you know, your batting average isn't always going to be that that amazing. But it seems weird to me that this is one of the biggest movie stars still on the planet yeah. and studios wouldn't take a, a gamble on him until you know, now. It's one of these things where I don't think he gets the blame for Sorcerer's Apprentice. I, I watched it again but recently, weirdly. No, no, I, I mean, I, no, I think he does. As an, as an I don't yeah. think he should, is what I'm saying, yeah. uh, get the blame for the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, it's just one of those overcooked films that's that's trying desperately to retrofit itself into a franchise and, mm. and you just kind of wish it wasn't but it's not his fault it's not um, his fault at all yeah. so so yeah, yeah. I, I just loved all the glancing little references that that you know barely show up but you know Mandy getting a, a little bit of a shout out more than once if yeah. I recall mm -hmm. correctly um, but a very passing reference to Captain Corelli you know th things <laughs> like that I just thought were really really fun so the more of his career you know the more you're going to pick mm -hmm. up on but you don't have to have seen anything other than Con if you like the basics, yeah. <laughs> Con Air, the, you know, face off the rock. You need to know he won an Oscar, but you don't have to have seen Leaving Las Vegas. In fact, I recommend you don't. No. <laughs> it's so depressing. It's, it's not a happy film. It's so but depressing. it's very good. I know, but it's so depressing. It is. never, ever ask me to stop drinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> but it's, yeah, so, you know, I think the more you know, the better. But if you only know the basics, you're still going to keep up with it. That's a good point, but then that that also the the, the sort of the cage nostalgia, the all the various cage references uh, reached their uh, apotheosis, if you will, in the uh, appearance of Nicky Cage, yeah. <laughs> the character. And I, again, I'm on. You probably can't remember, but Kevin and Tom, the nice people you spoke to about this movie, I'm sh sure you asked him about that character. Uh, that's 
mocap, isn't it? It's pretty decent, mm. I would say, for a movie with this budget level. That's that's pretty damn decent. Mm. And I know there were plans at one point to have various other manifestations of Cage from different points yes. in his career appear. But I'm fascinated by the choice of that particular brand of Cage. That's really early Cage. Yeah. That's it's around Wild Heart Cage. Yeah. Isn't it, it's not really? Wild Heart Cage. It's, no? it's 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 Vampire's Kiss Cage. Okay. It's Vampire's it's, it's the Cage around the time. So I think either he had just shot or was about to shoot Wild at Heart because the hair color is different. <laughs> but that's the cage who goes on to Wogan, to Wogan. and does yeah, the somersault. The somersault. And flips <laughs> the, and, Dan yeah. recreated it during yeah. the 500 <laughs> podcast, yes. Amazingly. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. That's that cage. You know, the, the, the sort of the more over-the-top operatic yeah. A, B, C, D. Mm. But I think that's, I mean, I think that's deliberate. I think it's fascinating that that's the one they went with. And, and I think it's right that that's the one they went with because that is the sort of the idealistic younger self, the uncompromising younger self, who's now sort of assessing the older Cage by his own rather naive, probably, uh, standards of, of of purism in art. That's mm -hmm. the guy without a wife, without kids, you know, who doesn't have any any encumbrances in his life beyond trying to be, you know, the, the most dedicated actor in the world. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, that's the guy that you see is still a part of Cage, you know, that early scene where he's, you know, trying to get his daughter to watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari <laughs> yes. for family movie night. Yes. Come yeah. on. You know, uh, that's that guy is still, still in there. him, but yeah. he's not the only version of Cage now and I think I think that just worked so well for me yeah before before little things like life and mm -hmm. and maintaining a lifestyle mm -hmm. which becomes I think very important I mean Johnny Depp I mean, you know, we're not going to get into Johnny Depp in this podcast but oh. you know certainly one of the things uh, about Johnny Depp in the last 10 years was that he had a very 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 <laughs> lavish lifestyle that he had to maintain and you know I remember reading once that he that, that his accountant said to him you need to make three $20 million movie paydays a year to keep your lifestyle going. And that was, he was on the way out from those paydays five years ago and he's never going to happen now. And Cage was kind of in the same ballpark. You know, and this was a guy who was like spending money on mansions here we've all left, been right, there. Yeah. we've all been there <laughs> we've all spent several hundred grand on a two-headed snake we've all yeah, done on, it we've all done it <laughs> but it, on comic books yeah. on, on t-rex yeah. skulls yeah. You, yeah. Know, you name it but it's true is as you get older your priorities begin to reshape and mm. and refocus and it's interesting like he's he's someone who still has that fire burning within him as I, manifested by as 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 personified by the character yeah absolutely I really like that that character, the Nicky Cage character, is credited as Nicholas Kim Coppola. Yes. There's just something really fun about that, which in case if you don't know, and I'm sure you do know if you listen to this, is Nicky Cage's real name. But yeah. it's just, there's just yes. something about that. It's, it, yeah, it, it was super charming. And I think, again, you know, it goes to this idea of purity and, um, you know, youthful exuberance and perhaps not being entirely entirely experienced in the world enough to know that there are other things that matter. But of course, he, he changed his name, didn't he, primarily to avoid sort of nepotism. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, kind of interesting from that point of view as well. Indeed. So there's a couple of a couple of sequences I wanted to talk about and a couple of things I wanted to talk about that, that surprised me. Was anyone else surprised by the film's sudden lurch into action movie tropes and the kind of sudden brutality with which it bumps off Tiffany Haddish and Ike Barinholtz. A little bit. Mm. Yes. I did not see that coming. Um, 
And I get what they were trying to do in terms of upping the stakes. But that final act, it did lose me a little bit because and I know the entire film is ridiculous. So there's an element of suspension of disbelief running all the way through. But in the final 20 minutes or so, it threatened to, it was, it was harder to sort of maintain that for me, uh, in part because of the action stuff that they do. I guess part of that might play into if they do that, then it means they can kill Javi, right? You know Nick Cage, he's wearing plot armor. They're not going to kill his, you know, Sharon Horgan or, or Lily Sheen. Or maybe they are, I don't know. But but Javi, they I, might kill. I thought they might kill Nick Cage. I thought that might be... Really? Yeah. Because he's got a K, so you can kill him. K, <laughs> K for kill. K for kill. That's not where my mind went, but okay. I guess it could be. Um, no, I just thought that, you know, that would be the kind of gonzo weird... The ultimate exorcism of Ultimate exorcism persona. ending, wouldn't it? Um, but... Uh, but no, I, I I liked the idea of going into those kind of, again, the, the sort of classic three, the Con Air face-off, Rock, Nicolas Cage kind of tone coming to the fore at the end of this film. I loved that as, a, as an idea of a, of a climax for the film. But I did think we lost some of the charm and some of the, the humour. And I wonder if there was a, a way to combine them a little bit more than they did. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how that would have what that would have looked like as mm. opposed to what they did but you know it did feel like a bit too abrupt of a shift maybe and and maybe there was a way to kind of soften that blow yeah I, I i was tremendously charmed by the film i i i like it a lot i don't think i like it quite as much as you three guys but i i saw it on a tv screen admittedly on a tv screen at home with my name emblazoned on the screen every five mm -hmm. seconds you guys mm -hmm. got to see it in the cinema with an audience laughing at all the right parts mm -hmm. and that that helps but maybe that also then meant that I was able to sear in the things that didn't work for me. The last act, I don't think, worked entirely well for me. And I, I do wonder if there's a slight, and it's deliberate, I think, a little bit, because it's obviously sending up the excesses of, of action movies yeah. and it's sending up the, the idea, it's being very meta about storytelling and about, you know, uh, about how their life is echoing the screenplay that, that Javi and Nick begin to write. But I do wonder if there's a slight... The waters are muddy, muddied slightly for me, vis-a-vis uh, Javi -vis at the end, mm. uh, and the sudden, very, very quick transition. It's a lovely transition to the <laughs> to the film within a film with with mm. Demi Moore. Yeah, but I do wonder if there was something else going on there. Maybe, maybe Javi did die in original in an original cut, no. and it got a little bit darker at the end because when we see him, he's being he and his lady love are being you know shot at by a bloke with machine guns, and and then we don't see him again until until the end and I even wondered if there was something about maybe like a an element of fantasy about the ending oh you couldn't kill off Harvey that would yeah. just that would that, you're a monster yeah, <laughs> a monster might as well kill baby Yoda while right. you're at it or Stephen Grant yeah yeah you come for Harvey we riot <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe, maybe it's just me, but I, I thought that that the, that element and actually even bringing the family in and putting them in peril, mm -hmm. I don't think worked entirely well for me. The film yeah. works best when it's Javi and, and it's Nick, whether they're dodging gunfire or just bonding. I would have been happy with the family out of peril. I think I think you're right on that. I, the only thing is, of course, it does give you a quick, uh, powerful way to to kind of repair those relationships. Yeah. Um, so, so maybe that would have been more difficult if they hadn't been there and you would, you would have had to find a quicker way to, or find a, a way to communicate the fact that these three people have gotten back together. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure how else you would have done it, but yeah, it did feel a little bit manufactured at that point, which of course it is. It's yeah. fine. I kind of saw it coming a little bit, but I think the scene in which it's revealed that Harvey is not the 
bad guys, his brother, was done really effectively mm. as well. Yeah, it was really good. I like that shift. Cousin, I believe. Cousin, Cousin, Cousin yeah. yeah. Right. Can we also talk about the uh, the trippy acting? Mm-hmm. Their, their <laughs> LSD trip. <laughs> One of the funniest things I've seen this mm. year. Absolutely. And genius. the anaesthetised acting as well. <gasps> yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so great. Action! <laughs> Yes, <laughs> such a great idea. Yeah, yes. I love that. Yeah, he's he's hilarious because he he is hilarious. He's a great physical comedian. Just look at Raisin Arizona for proof of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad that this and the the sequence with the trippy major ball sacks, which is very very funny, <laughs> uh, but also the even though I don't, I think the movie's beginning to lose itself a little bit. But the point where he has to pretend to be. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, the the mafia, major, yeah, 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 the, yeah. the kingpin. That's very, that's very, very funny indeed. Yeah, really and just, it just, this is a celebration. This is what Nick Cage is capable of. Cast him in your films, you absolute monsters. <laughs> Amen to that. Indeed. Yeah. One last thing. This is also a movie that celebrates the glory of Paddington too. Yes, yes, it is. That is one of the best jokes in the entire movie. It's not a joke. I'm on. <laughs> it is no joke. It is cold, cold. It is cold hard fact. Mm. I do not disagree. I mean, if I were cynical, I'd yeah. say they were doing that just to appeal to film Twitter. But I don't think anyone who loves Paddington 2 is cynical about Paddington 2. So I think it's genuinely sincere. Yeah. And I love it. Now that that was one of the biggest laughs in yeah. our screening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also it's, you know, more fun than The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I'm sorry, but it just. is. Just, just. <laughs> Although whenever Aunt Lucy comes back at the end of the cabinet, the cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Caligari, when she comes out of the cabinet, oh, yeah. love it. What's the second film that they talk about? Because they, they say your three, three favorite films of all time. Uh, one is the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. I should have written this down. I should. And the other one is Paddington Two, and the other one's the third one. There you go. Good stuff. Good. Good. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it a cage one? I think it's a cage one. It's a cage one. Isn't it? Is it a cage one? Because yeah. it's Javi's three. It's face off or something, isn't it? It's like uh, the Rock or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, anything else to say about this movie? Good or bad? Things you like, things you didn't like? <laughs> Sorry. Just remember, remember some, I'm looking at some of the best quotes from the movie. Maybe <laughs> it's just the drugs talking, but what if we had a big drug scene? <laughs> That's a great line. I did like the scene where Cage is auditioning in the sort of first few minutes of the oh, movie. That yes. oh, that was cringe. Oh, you didn't like that? Cringe. I can't <laughs> deal with cringe comedy. I can't do it. And I nearly died then. I think it was the combination of that scene and then talking to uh, Nick in the car about how awesome he was and like that reference, solid gold, it was perfect. I can't believe you pulled that out of nowhere or something like that. Aww. Something like that effect. That was funny. That was I enjoyed tragedy. that. The pathos there, I found it hard to deal with. Like it, That was really tragic. I didn't, didn't like that. <laughs> Wasn't that meant to be Tarantino? It was David it Gordon was meant Green to be Tarantino, in the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't, I, it's good in that moment, but I don't think he quite sells the horror of having that monologue delivered to you. <laughs> oh, no, I got it. I felt yeah. it. Yeah. I liked, like James, the cringe yeah. was very, yeah. very strong. And yeah. then, of course, the cringe of the party where he's playing the song at on the piano. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. That was cringe. Yeah. yeah. The man needs an intervention. He needs to go to a really, really kick-ass island uh, and bond with his bestie mate. One of my favourite lies in the film was when Cage is going on about his nouveau shamanic ability to discern discern how how he is innocent, which he should have apparently gone with because he was 100% right. Um, But yeah, that was funny. I love that. All right. Okay. Well, I think on that note... That is it for this The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent spoiler special. Nick Cage was jolted awake by the word action 
I see what happens when we all hear the word cut. Uh, <laughs> thank you as ever for subscribing to these spoiler specials. We hope you've enjoyed them. Uh, thank you to Amon for doing an interview he can't remember a thing about. That's part of the course. That's part of the course for these things. I do these interviews <laughs> and I, I instantly forget them. Instantly, uh, yeah. But it is goodbye from my three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Helen O'Hara. Tiddly. James Dyer. I could eat a peach for hours. <laughs> I'd rather you didn't. Fair enough. And uh, a mon woman. You have a gift, Chris. And to turn your back on this gift is to turn your back on the entire human race. I do have the unbearable weight of massive talent on my shoulders. <laughs> Peace. Every single day. There you go. And it's goodbye from me as well. I am off to watch Guardian Tess again <laughs> and again. Maybe my favourite Nick Cage film. I'm no, very glad not. you weren't on the ranking of that. It's not. <laughs> what is it? I wasn't on the ranking. What is my favorite? The Rock. Nick Cage? Obviously, The Rock. There is no discussion. It's The Rock. It's the fucking Rock. I don't know. It that. really is. <laughs> it is 100% is. The Rock. Look, I will brook no discussion on this we, subject. We all enjoy uh, French Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans, but come on, it's The Rock. French Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans. Now, that is a film I would watch. God, that's probably. It's very late in the day. That's the Jeremy Irons ranking. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. Of course it is. I don't think it is. Walmart. Uh, yeah, it is. The Rock did win our ranking, right? Good. It yes, did. Correct. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah. it narrowly, no. narrowly, narrowly. What was uh, number two? Raised in Arizona, I believe. Pff, fuck that. Dan was on the ranking. <laughs> yeah, of course he was. Fucking yeah, Dan. Fucking also, Dan. I voted for him. Oh, of course stupid. you did. Yeah, hey, you too. Stupid. Yeah, come on, brother, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Stupid. Not the fucking Rock, though, is it? No, because The Rock was number one on my list. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, I have the top ten here. I have the top ten. The Rock, The Rock, The Rock. The Rock, The Rock. I have the top 10. Here's the top 10. All right. So um, it was Moonstruck at number 10. Okay. It was Leaving Should Las Vegas. Ugh, I, I mean, there's 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 a really he great... He did win an Oscar. He did win an Oscar. I, I, what, his I know, I know, but it's like... Yeah. Uh, no. It's like Not all being, films have to be funny and uh, joyful. And oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't aware. <laughs> I know, I know, but I just honestly, I would rather drink bleach than see that film again. <laughs> I'm not. I'm with you. I am with you. Number eight, and he, and he's been much better in many other movies, including uh, The Rock, inclu Next. including <laughs> The Rock. Uh, number eight, Mandy. Number seven, Con Air. Yay. Number Should six, Pig. Number five, Red Rock West, and that's a. I was surprised to see that yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. Number four, Adaptation, the film he should have won an Oscar for that's again. That's true. Uh, number three, Face Off. Number two, Raised in Arizona. Number one, The Rock. Uh, notable omissions were Wild at Heart, Kick-Ass, uh, as in people voted for them, but they didn't quite make the top ten. Uh, Birdie. Who the fuck voted for Birdie? <laughs> Peggy Sue got married. Uh, French Lieutenant. Uh, <laughs> New Orleans. Bringing Out the Dead. Matchstick Man. Great film. And then we decided that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse didn't count as a Nick Cage film. Um, because did we? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Did we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, why the fuck's it not in the top ten then? No, we decided it didn't. Kind. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So they did decide that it didn't count. Yes, we yeah. did. Yes. Yes. That's, that's what I said. That's what Helen said. Yeah, I'm agreeing. She agreed. With but that's you. what I'm I said. Oh my god! You. I'm Castor Troy. And I'm Chris. Fucking. Oh god. Yeah. Okay. Enough. You did it wrong. You did do it wrong. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, now I remember raising this by the best question because if it were included, it would have been my number one. Except, no. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, sure. It's not The Rock, though, is it? It's better than The Rock. No, 
is no, it? No, come on, come on, don't no, be Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is a better film than The Rock. I'm, I'll, I'll happily say that. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> and no point does Michael Bean appear in Into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> like, you know, no, no one would logically describe that as a Nicholas Cage. No, therefore no, they we wouldn't. Therefore, we, we cast it aside. Yeah. I, cast I, it out! <laughs> I agree with us casting it aside. I'm just saying if it were to be included... Oh, it would be high. It, it would, would be, be number high. one. Yeah, but it it'd be, be number high. one on your list of any film in any category. Yeah, fair, probably. Okay, good. I'm glad we've, we've, yeah. we've landed. I mean, it is that good. You, I mean, well, it's animation, so I guess you don't... Yeah, that's its but... one downside, but other than that, it's great. <laughs> Anywho. <sighs> Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>